Multi-Robot Systems with Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hello and welcome to the RoboHub podcast. Today, we will hear about exciting research in multi-robot and multi-agent systems. More specifically, we'll explore how such systems can learn and coordinate more effectively. In multi-robot systems, implementing effective learning coordination policies, for example, to achieve a common objective, can be a challenge. Machine learning is a powerful tool that could address this challenge, but it can also lead to unexplainable behaviours. Amanda Prorock, a professor at the University of Cambridge, spoke to our interviewer Lily about her research with multi-robot systems and her recent work on explainability. Hi, welcome to the RoboHub podcast. Would you mind introducing yourself? Hi, my name is Amanda Prorock. I'm a faculty member at the University of Cambridge at the Computer Science and Technology Department, and I work on multi-robot systems. And have you been in this field for your whole life? Did you always know you were going to go into this? Uh, Great question. So I've been in this field for quite a while, yes. Uh, My passion for multi-robot systems started in my PhD when I was working on um, collaborative localization and collaborative perception technologies um, in, yeah, in the field of multi-robot systems already. Um, and I kind, of, I kind of got stuck in that field um, ever since. So I, my passion for, for robotics actually started when I was doing my um, uh, master's degree at EPFL in Switzerland where I took a course um, by a very um, passionate teacher. And what I what really struck me when I took that course, so it was a course on swarm intelligence, actually. What really struck me when I was taking that course was this idea that you can observe some really complicated, um, fascinating emergent behaviors in nature, and then you can go back to your lab and try to retro um, or reverse engineer the kinds of phenomena that you think you're observing on individual robots and see whether or not you can generate that same emergent behavior as, um, you know, as a function of those local, essentially rule-based systems that you've just implemented. Um, So this idea of emergent behavior and how interaction between multiple um, entities, uh, you know, kind of becomes was just absolutely mind-blowing to me at the time and this idea that you can actually control robots to generate these higher order emergent patterns was really phenomenal to me and so I started getting interested in robots not because of you know the robots themselves but really what they can do um, for us and teach us about um, ourselves about nature and ultimately what they can do for us um, in in terms of the kinds of problems we're trying to solve right um, and then I went on to, you know, I did my PhD and then I did the postdoc in the, in the area. And then I decided that I didn't want to leave academia. So here I am. <laughs> um, you mentioned that you're very excited about what they can do for us. And I wanted to ask about some of the applications that you find the most interesting. So there are a lot of applications um, that are becoming really relevant to um 
faculty members or researchers and even companies in the R&D domain um, that you know, work with multi-robot systems. And the ones that you're perhaps hearing most about these days are logistics, so warehouse robotics, uh, transport, as in platoons, potentially tr um, truck platoons, even formations of autonomous vehicles. Um, and then there are a couple of others that are potential that are perhaps um, commercially less exploited but equally interesting, such as environmental monitoring. Um, so this can be sent like drone systems um, monitoring the health of various uh, geographical sites or even underwater robot um, groups or swarms, trying to map and understand what's happening in areas that we humans cannot necessarily access as well. So those are all areas that I think are, are being um, explored and exploited more and more with the help of multi-robot systems. And there are a couple of other frontiers that I find like super exciting um, and really important. If you think about um, areas where we have difficulty in deploying fixed infrastructure, such as internet connectivity, um, we can think of servicing these areas through mobile assets, as in robots, right? And we've seen a couple of projects in the last decade or so trying to do that. So there was, um, you know, uh, formerly there was Project Loon that was talked about quite a lot um, in the media where they were providing hot air balloons. Um, I think uh, it was uh, trying to cover areas and provide remote areas with connectivity. Um, so this idea of mobile coverage to provide connectivity or even sensing, I think, is really powerful because you're kind of um, overcoming the need to deploy fixed infrastructure. And these then become cheap solutions that you can repurpose um, and provide them on demand, essentially, right? So I think that's a really beautiful application of multi-robot systems. Um, and then, you know, there's the idea of contextual information that we can gather when we, when we deploy um, static or moving sensors. Um, in, in also structured environments. So you could think of airports or shopping houses or other types of environments where humans move around in and, and could exploit contextual information about, say, something that's happening, something that they might want to go check out or um, simply, um, you know, networks that um, give humans the information that they are seeking at any given point in time, right? Really information on the go provided by mobile networks. So I think there are a lot of different things we can think of um, uh, using robots for. Yeah, that's a great answer. And you mentioned, so you mentioned balloons and also static sensors and perhaps a couple of other things that I wouldn't normally think of as being a robotics problem. So I'm kind of curious what your take is on what makes something a multi-robot systems problem? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's a really great question. So, what makes? Let, let me start with the the following um, kind of approach to the to the answer. So, sensor networks we're very familiar with, right? So, those are networks of sensors that are perceiving something in the environment, and they're somehow connected to each other. And um, depending on the topology of the network, they're going to be. Um, feeding this information through the network and eventually it'll arrive at some sort of sync and that sync will decide what to do with that information. That's usually how we think about sensor networks. Now, the next level up is thinking, okay, those sensors now, they can move. And they can move in order to just 
basically, you know, for, for the purpose of motion, but maybe they can also move for the purpose of actuation beyond just motion um, in space. Perhaps it's also because they want to manipulate things. And as soon as you start adding that dimension, um, you're thinking of multi-robot systems, right? So it's really um, this idea of a multi-agent system, but in the physical domain, where we're really interested in this idea that um, we have we have agents that are somehow governed by the rules of you know dynamics, so first order systems, second order systems, etc. And we're interested in those dynamics because they can bring something. They're bringing an additional dimension or some richness to the problem that helps us solve whatever it is that we're trying to solve, right? So I guess that's what I consider a multi-robot system versus the other flavors of multi that we're aware of. So sensor networks or multi-agent systems. Right. Yeah. I was actually just going to ask, um, you've mentioned now swarms, multi-robot systems, multi-agent systems. Um, could you could you clarify a little bit how you would break those things up? Yeah, that's also a really good question. So I think that a lot of these terms are are used to um, designate the same thing. So a lot of them are overloaded. In my mind, I do have, um, I per personally use them in different ways. So when I talk about swarms, it's, it's often because I'm talking about um, uh, a multi-robot system that I'm going to control in a specific way, right? And when I talk about multi-robot systems, I'm, 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 I'm usually talking about systems that are controlled um, through methods that actually care about every single unit in, in the system. So for me, the differentiation between swarms and multi-robot systems is the countable versus the uncountable. And it doesn't necessarily mean that I have a lot of robots in a swarm. It just means that I'm going to be treating the swarm as a blob, right? There can be three in the blob or there could be a billion in the blob, but I'm going to be treating it with methods that would normally stem from the continuous domain. Now the multi-robot system, I'm going to treat it or I'm going to try to control it with methods that tends to come from the discrete domain. So, um, you, you know, you can think of methods coming from operational research, um, assignment type algorithms, those kinds of discrete type solvers that care about what the decision maker is doing to every single robot in the system. And there are different applications that benefit from different um, you know, solvers, right? So if I'm thinking of warehouse robotics, I'm clearly going to think about discrete type solvers where I need to have a way of controlling every single robot in my system. But if I'm thinking of environmental monitoring, for example, I'm sending out a swarm of drones. I don't, if I have a hundred of them, I don't necessarily need to know exactly where every single robot of those hundred robots is, as long as I have a general sense of what the area is that these hundred robots are covering. And then I can think about, you know, methods that are that stem from the continuous domain and I can treat those hundred ro robots as a kind of a blanket and I can kind of control that system much more effectively um, given those um, what I'm calling my swarmy methods right so that's how I distinguish multi-robot from swarms but then there's also multi-agent and that's where I kind of tie back to what I said before where on the one hand side, a multi-agent system doesn't necessarily have to be embodied. It's, it can be something that doesn't necessarily live in a physical world, but it can. And I do sometimes use it in that sense, because in if you think about it, a multi-agent system is, is just the generalization of all of this, right? A multi-agent system can be a heterogeneous multi-robot system where I have robots, but potentially also sensors and maybe also humans, and they're all interacting with each other. And I'm just going to call this a multi-agent system. 
And so ultimately, I think the Holy Grail is really developing methods that, um, that coordinate multi-agent systems and know how to deal with those kinds of communities. Great. Well, that's an excellent segue. I, I want to ask a little bit more about your research group right now um, and what sorts of problems you're working on. But I was curious whether you have seen a, a trend in your own research moving sort of in and out of those three classifications that you've defined and, and whether there's one that you're more particularly drawn to right now. And it sounds a little bit like it was multi-agent systems, but. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So what we try to do in my lab is we're, well, we're really interested in, in the overarching problem of coordinating multi-agent systems to answer to higher order goals. Um, and I think that's the simplest way I can put it. So we really, we're interested in, in, in systems that coordinate or collaborate or cooperate in some form or another, because what they're trying to do at the end of the day is, is something where they need to interact with each other um, in order for that task um, to be satisfied. Now, um, I, it's true that I've moved in and out of these various um, domains. So I did quite a bit of work in, in swarm robotics, swarm intelligence, where I was developing methods that lived very strongly in the continuous domain. And then I got more interested into discrete methods, so assignment algorithms. Um, I got interested in like mobility on demand type solutions, where we were developing um, methods that would assign, say, vehicles to humans and trying to think about that logistics problem. And now I'm very interested in looking at um, multi-agent systems that are not necessarily homogeneous, but can potentially be heterogeneous. So different types of robots or robots with different constraints. And one of the topics that we've actually been focusing on quite a lot is this idea of, um, well, what do robots need to, or what do agents need to communicate to each other in order for them to coordinate effectively and efficiently. And many of the coordination problems that we're trying to solve are, are hard in the sense that we don't really have very efficient um, first principles-based solvers to do these kinds of things for us. And so we're, we're leveraging a lot of machine learning-based solutions to help us along the way um, in this research uh, thrust. Could you clarify what you mean by we don't have first principle solvers? So there are kind of, there are certain types of problems that are um, have been proven to be hard. So if you think about the multi-agent path uh, finding problem, that is one uh, excellent example of a problem that is NP hard to solve um, when you try to solve it optimally for either make span or flow time, which are two ways of quantifying how quickly agents get from origin to, um, origin locations to destinations in a potentially very cluttered workspace, right? Um, so that problem, if you try to solve it um, for, to optimality in a centralized manner, uh, has been shown about a decade ago to be um, hard to solve. Now, what this means for us is unless we develop um, approximations, so approximative algorithms, which do exist, by the way, um, we have no hope of, of solving this for for larger numbers of robots because the complexity um, scales exponentially in the number of robots that you're trying to solve the problem for, right? Um, and so what we have been, so this is kind of all to kind of illustrate an example of why we've been interested in developing other types of solutions. And so we've been studying this problem as one of the many problems that are hard to solve. 
um, as a case study for, for a hard coordination problem. And we've been thinking about, okay, how can we devise a learning algorithm that not only decentralizes the problem statement, but also tells me what policies I have to uh, deploy onto my robots so that they can then autonomously communicate with each other to coordinate and decide what the best actions are that they have to take in order to ultimately um, do their jobs. So which is get to their goal destinations as quickly as possible without getting into bottlenecks and without um, blocking any other agents or robots along the way, right? And so that's kind of the type of problem we've been studying as a classical kind of paradigm um, example, which could lead to insights on how we can leverage learning technologies to solve very hard problems that are hard with our current understanding coming from the first principles domain. So if I understood correctly, you're trying to learn um, policies for both the actual path planning and the coordination? So it's actually the same thing, right? Because potentially you could say that the coordination consists of what the robots are communicating with each other, but the actions that they take are coordinated actions. So those are actions they're taking because of what they know that the other robots are doing, right? So if imagine if, if the two of us are in a room and maybe a couple others are in the room and we kind of want to exchange positions, you're going to be talking to... Um, so imagine we're, we're all sitting in a circle and you just want us to exchange places in the circle. We, when we move towards the center of the circle, it's going to get cluttered and we all have to decide, okay, am I going left or right or who's going to go where so that you know we kind of get around each other and we can exchange places in that circle, right? And so that's kind of an example of the type of coordination you're, you're going to try to solve through communication. And the result of that communication is going to be the coordinated um, action plan, which is, which, are simply, which is simply a set of coordinated paths. I see. And this is all, these are all distributed solutions. So each, each robot would be deciding on its own how to behave. Exactly, exactly. So the the policies are completely local in the sense that we're telling the robots what they have to communicate to other robots. And when they receive messages, we're telling them how they have to interpret those messages. And that information is then processed um, locally and feeds into their action policies and informs the action policies. Okay, this is, this is the thing you have to do, do next because of what the state is of your neighbors um, in your vicinity, right? Right, yeah. And, and and at the level that the robots are communicating, are they explicitly um, letting each other know their intentions, their final end goal, their full path? Like what what is it that you end up transferring? Yeah, that's a great question too. So um, ideally you want them to be communicating what they're observing locally, but these are design, design decisions that you can make um, as a, you know, at, at the time that you're actually designing the the program or or the architecture that you're building right so in our case we we try to restrict these um or we try to 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 not make very strong assumptions about what the robots need to know because we think that that's the most powerful way of of thinking about the problem so the, the types of assumptions we make are the robots can see stuff that's in their immediate vicinity so they can they, they have um, a certain visibility uh, radius, so a couple of meters potentially. They can see um, the, the obstacles that are immediately in their line of sight. And generally, we don't, we don't require them to know where they are um, in an absolute coordinate frame. They might just have a general sense of where 
the direction of their goal location is, but they don't even know where their goal lies exactly in space. But they will note they will notice when they reach their goals, right? So that's a signal we give um, uh, to them. So this, um, I have reached my destination, is something that the robots will know. Um, and apart from that, they can maybe just see if the agents that are also in their immediate vicinity, and that's it, right? And that's that's all the information they have, and that's what they're going to be. Um, dealing with when they make their own decisions in combination with whatever incoming messages they have from their neighbors, right? Yeah, interesting. Now that I sort of have a grasp on the problem, what sorts of learning approaches are you using for this? Is this mostly a reinforcement learning problem? So there are kind of the, there are two parts to uh, this answer. The first part is what architectures are we using? And the second part is uh, what learning paradigm are we using? And they can be combined in different ways. So the architecture that we're most interested in recently are graph neural networks. And the reason we're so interested in graph neural networks is because generally when, you, when you're trying to solve um, problems um, and that are very high dimensional, you run into issues of um, data complexity. So you, you tend to have to gather a lot of data. And, and unless you somehow restrict the representation space, um, these learning problems are very, very difficult. And so one way of restricting the representation space is um, to incorporate some sort of structural knowledge about the types of data that you're trying to process, right? And graph neural networks do this in a very elegant way for multi-agent systems because they inherently represent what a multi-agent system is doing, right? So if you think of a graph as a communication topology and you think of the agents as the nodes in these systems and the edges as the interactions that the agents can, um, can, can make between each other, then you have a very natural way of representing what a multi-agent system is through this architecture, right? And so we leverage this architecture as a very as 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 um, as a way of making this, the the search problem more amenable to the machine learning uh, approach of solving these kinds of things, right? And so that's the architecture part of the answer. And then you you asked me about the paradigm. Well, we've we've been doing various things. So we've been doing imitation learning. We've been doing reinforcement learning, and it really depends on what. The underlying problem is that you're trying to solve and the answer to that question really is is application specific do you anticipate um staying in this sort of learning realm for the near future or are there are there other um what are some of the open research directions that you're excited about for the next few years so that's also a really good question and i think um there there's a lot to say there. So I think one of the things I find so um, interesting about uh, looking at learning as a means to, to generating more powerful controllers is this idea that we have first principles-based solvers that we understand and we know are optimal and we can use to generate optimal behaviors. But we, we're only really good at running them for relatively small systems because they tend to become intractable as soon as we start you know, desiring to scale them to systems of, say, several dozens of agents or, or you know, hundreds and thousands. And so when you talk, start talking, thinking of systems at scale and you want to solve coordination problems at scale and all of that, we're, we're, we're increasingly looking at other types of solutions. And this is where I think learning can really provide us with an interesting avenue because, especially if you think of, you know, imitation learning, we can generate optimal um, data sets or optimal like expert 
demonstrations of behavior with these first principles-based controllers and use them as templates to then train policies that can be run on our multi-agent systems at a much larger scale at inference time, right? At runtime, right? So we're essentially, we're using our knowledge about what an expert should look like. And then we're taking that template and pasting it onto systems that are much, much bigger. But because we now have these these decentralized policies that we we know we can build through our graph neural networks, we can run them for um, n equals whatever agents, right? And that's really the beauty um, that that learning-based solutions um, ultimately would be able to provide us with. Now, it's not as easy as as I'm making it sound um, because we don't know at this point um, to what point, um, to what extent our, our policies really do generalize to very large systems. And we're still looking into methods that would provide that um, capability. But we have um, been achieving very promising results that show us that um, a, lot of the, a lot of the solutions we've been developing um, do scale quite nicely to you know, 10x, 100x beyond the training instances. And so this is really promising and really exciting for me. But then, you know, we can, we can, if we continue down that line, we can say, okay, so, so let's say we now have these um, solvers that can, or these policies that scale to, to arbitrarily large systems. These, these policies are still black box controllers, right? And we're talking about robots that we're potentially deploying out into the wild and where, where we have people interacting with them or in warehouses or in other environments where, Safety and reliability is really paramount. And so what are we going to do about this issue that they are ultimately black box controllers and we don't necessarily know what they're going to do because we, we don't have insight, right? And so this, there, this, there comes a new, a new research topic, which I also think is really, really important. And, and we're also um, increasingly looking into at my lab, which is that of explainability and interpretability of um, autonomous decision-making systems that ultimately our black box, right, um, in the context of machine learning. And so if we, we've been starting to scratch the surface of this idea of, well, how do we provide explainability, interpretability um, for policies or actions um, that have been made through these kinds of controllers? Yeah, I, I, I know that this is a, obviously an unsolved problem, but where do you even start trying to add explainability to something like this? So there are many different approaches, and I think that um, it's it's not necessarily a super new topic, explainability and interpretability. But I do, um, you know, we've been we've been studying this this for a while now, back in my lab, and we keep on coming up against different definitions of it. And I think it's it's not really um, we haven't really pinned it down yet what we exactly mean by it. And I think there are a number of valid definitions of what interpretability interpretability um, really is or has means to us um, to date. But it's, a, it's an area in, that is in flux. But I can give you one very concrete example of, of how we went about tackling this issue or, or starting to tackle this issue. Um, so a couple of months back, we published a paper on the emergence of adversarial communication in systems where we're, we're using machine learning as um, the architecture or the paradigm behind um, the the coordination solution to a multi-agent problem, right? Um, and what we were trying to do in that in that piece of work was we were simply trying to coordinate a bunch of agents that would together cover an area as efficiently as possible. And in order to coordinate, those agents had to communicate to each other. 
Now, what we then did to see um, um, whether, you know, whether or not we would have some sort of insight into what the robots were communicating to each other was we decided we tried to make one of those agents a bad agent, right? <clears throat> and we wanted to see if we could make that agent lie. And simultaneously, we were interested in seeing if we could actually visualize those lies and make sense of what the agents were communicating to each other. And so we were actually able to do that. So we were able to train one of the agents to communicate information to the other agents that would um, manipulate all the other agents to going into a certain area in the search space, so in, in, in that workspace that they were trying to cover, so that that one bad agent had more area for to itself, right? So that one bad agent could go and cover cells in that unexplored area, reaping the rewards of actually exploring those untouched cells for the first time in a completely egotistical way, right? And that was really interesting to us. And we were really um, kind of intrigued by this behavior. And we said, well, let's try to figure out if we can visualize what that agent is actually communicating to the other agents. And so we, what we did is we trained an interpreter network that um, basically um, was fed that information that that agent was sending out to the other agents. And that interpreter network, what it represented was simply a snapshot of the coverage graph. And what we were able to show was that the bad agent was communicating a coverage that was completely false and was essentially misleading the other agents into areas that were already covered, right? So it was telling them, you guys should go into that corner because it's not covered. But actually, that corner was an area that the bad agent had already covered. And so the bad agent was basically just getting the, all the goodies, the good guys, out of its way so that it had more of the uncovered um, cells to itself. And so that's, long story short, that was one way of, of, of interpreting um, the strategy that was learned through our, uh, through our graph neural network. So what kind of communication was learned through agents, right? Um, and so we constructed this whole story in order to be able to, to understand a little bit more about, you know, the kind of emergent communication that you have in such systems and also to show that we can actually visualize them um, for, for, for certain applications, such as this coverage um, task. That's fascinating. So it was the adversarial agent was using one of these black box controllers. All the agents were actually trained um, through neural networks. Um, they, they were all run, running black, black box controllers. And the communication, what the agents were communicating was part of our GNN. So that was also learned through um, a neural network. Super interesting. And if, if, the, if the good agents can all communicate with each other as well, do you think given enough time or given enough like uh, training in this exact problem, they would have overcome the bad agent? Is that something that you're working on? Yeah, absolutely. That's that's a really great question. And um, actually that we were able to show that that is possible. Yeah. So if you put the bad agent into the same environment as the good agents and you let the, the good guys react to the bad agent's communication, eventually over time, um, they actually learn um, to overcome that um, misleading information. But you have to um, unfreeze their, their parameters, essentially. You have to give them the capability of continuing to learn in that environment where the bad agent is, is executing its, its actions. Awesome. Well, um, unfortunately, I think we've pretty much run out of time, but this was super interesting. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Thanks, Libby. It was great talking to you. 
And that brings us to the end of today's episode. As always, there's plenty more to discover at robohub.org forward slash podcast, including information about how you can become a patron for RoboHub. As a community-supported podcast, we are run by an international team of volunteers, and we rely on small donations from listeners like yourself to keep us going. So check out how you can help at robohub.org forward slash podcast, and we'll see you again with a brand new episode in about two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. Multi-Robot Systems with Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics.